Good afternoon. My name is John Samples. I work here at the Cato Institute, where I'm vice president and publisher. I'd like to thank you and welcome you for coming to our book forum today on our new publication, a new publication from Cato Institute Press, Aftermath, The Unintended Consequences of Public Policies by our author, Tom Hall. Uh, at the beginning of our uh, event today, I would like to ask everyone, as is so often the case today, to turn off your cell phones uh, so that we can have an event that is peaceful throughout. Uh, our general plan today will be for about an hour or so to have our author and two commentators talk about the subjects uh, treated in his book. And then uh, for a half hour or so, about one or so, we will begin a question uh, answer period, and then thereafter we'll go upstairs and have lunch. So let's begin. For the last 80 years or so in the United States, and perhaps even further back, depending on how you count the history, we have lived with an activist government in the United States. The story that government, that activist government, offers to us by way of justification is well known. Life is unfair. Government will make uh, more parts of life fair for more people, it is said. Markets fail. Government supposedly will regulate and make markets work better or perhaps make them serve the common good or become more efficient. In some way, they will be improved. It is fair to say, for the hard lessons learned perhaps since the mid-1970s onward, is that reality contravenes these expectations, not in every case, perhaps, but in many cases. And indeed, part of our struggles and part of our debates uh, are now about to what extent does reality contravene the widespread hopes about regulation and its beneficent effects and government action and its beneficent effects. Our author today, in Aftermath, has looked closely at taxes, wage controls, and prohibition. And we look forward today to hearing about those results as a continuing contribution to that ongoing debate that is really remains at the center of American political life. The value of activist government, the effectiveness of regulation, or the lack thereof. Our author, Thomas E. Hall, was born in Detroit, Michigan, and grew up in the suburb of Royal Oak. He attended the University of Colorado as an undergraduate and was a graduate student at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he received his MA and PhD in economics. He has been an economics professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio since 1982 and teaches classes on macroeconomics, the business cycle, and uh, the Great Depression. He has written several articles in applied macroeconomics and is the author of Business Cycles, The Nature and Causes of Economic Fluctuations, as well as The Great Depression, An International Disaster of Perverse Economic Policies. There, I think, even in that subtitle, you see that our author has a turn of mind that is not entirely conventional, since, of course, part of the story of activist government is that the Great Depression was caused by markets. And also, uh, Tom has written The Rotten Fruits of Economic Controls and the Rise from the Ashes, 1965 to 1989. Aftermath is a continuation of the, his uh, publishing career. And I would like, he lives today in Wyoming, Ohio, with his wife, Chris, 
They have one adult son, and I would like to ask you to join me in welcoming Tom Hall to the Cato Institute. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for coming, and I'd like to thank the Cato Institute for their willingness to publish my book and all the trouble they've gone to to um, help um, bring it out and market it. It's, uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, the, the book, um, I, I originally got interested in this topic when I was in graduate school. I was reading something uh, Milton Friedman had written, and he made the statement in there that m much, much economic instability had been caused by the government. In fact, he said not only was the government a major source of the economic instability, it's probably the major source. And I read that, and I thought, you know, well, what an outlandish statement to make. Is that true? And as I went along and did more and more work, I realized that, yes, it was very true. And, and if anything, Milton Friedman's probably um, understating the case, that uh, the government has been a, a front and center in most, uh, almost all of the economic instability we've had in the United States. So that was um, what I've been working on up until recently. I got more interested in these, uh, these case studies, and I thought there might be a market out there for a book, um, a short book, an accessible book, that looked at a few different uh, specific case studies that people uh, could relate to because they see them out there in the world, and they might kind of get through, you know, get through the idea that, yeah, unintended consequences are out there. That when the government uh, makes a policy, uh, especially if it's a badly designed one, uh, there are significant uh, unintended consequences. And sometimes they're not uh, too horrid, but sometimes they can be so bad as to completely undo the, do the policy. So anyway, that's the... Um, that's the genesis of books. So let's see here. Uh, four case studies. I, I chose four. I, ch I chose them um, on uh, what I thought would, people would be interested in. And um, what they are is the, um, the federal income tax. Uh, the cigarette taxes are an interesting story of uh, uh, being assessed by state and, in some cases, local governments and some of the trouble that that's caused. Uh, the minimum wage, uh, the uh, the wage floor that the uh, government, federal government has imposed, and now many states have imposed as well, and uh, alcohol prohibition, which as I read through alcohol prohibition, I was in, just reminded again and again of the war on drugs. So what I'll do here is I'll kind of summarize these four cases and give you an idea of um, what, what's in the book. The federal income tax uh, dates to 1913. Uh, well, the income tax we have today. There's a, a history, and you'll find it in the book, about what we were doing in the Civil War in the 1890s. But uh, today's modern income tax dates to 1913, when we passed a constitutional amendment that allowed the government to uh, assess income taxes, uh, direct taxes, um, and indirect taxes, irregardless of uh, uh, state populations. So they set up the federal income tax, and the original federal income tax, the whole point of the exercise was to shift the tax burden onto the wealthy. Uh, see, prior to the federal income tax, the federal government received their revenue from tobacco, taxing tobacco, alcohol, and imported goods. And wealthy people, the, the industrialists, you know, the people who made the big bucks during the Industrial Revolution, uh, were essentially exempt from this. I mean, yeah, they smoked, they drank, um, they, they bought some imported goods, but these taxes were not a major consideration to them. Uh, meanwhile, they, they were actually benefiting from the um, import taxes because what they did was offer protection against uh, the manufactured goods that they were producing, you know, protection from imports. Uh, so the, <clears throat> the idea then was to shift the tax burden onto the upper class. So they imposed a federal income tax. 
And when they were doing it, there wasn't much discussion about what they would do with the revenue. Uh, when you read through it, you kind of get the idea that they pictured this thing being revenue neutral. Uh, what they wanted to do was impose this, start taxing the rich with the income tax, and then uh, down, you know, not necessarily eliminate, but um, reduce, reduce the taxes on alcohol, tobacco, and uh, imported goods. Well, what happened was uh, they went ahead and passed a law, and then World War I happened a few years later. And this was a very, very big event in the history of the income tax uh, because they raised tax rates to help uh, finance the war. Now, the income tax during World War I was still geared towards the upper incomes. But they significantly raised the um, uh, tax rates. They dropped the exempt amount of income from 4000 to 2000 per family. That's still a pretty wealthy family during World War I, but uh, they dropped the exempt amount. And meanwhile, the economy boomed. So what happened is this flood of tax revenue uh, developed during World War I, and this kind of put them on notice that, you know, this is a pretty rev powerful revenue-raising tool. <clears throat> the Republicans were running Congress during the 1920s, and what they did was reduce income tax rates several times. Uh, they, they kind of did not take the... Um, uh, revenue that they could have had. They were willing to cut the taxes, which is one of the reasons why the economy did so well during the 1920s. Uh, but uh, I'll skip the Great Depression here. Um, again, that's a long story we don't need to go into right now. But uh, World War II was the, the key event again. World War I had set the stage, and here comes World War II. And the uh, income taxes had been raised several times during the 1930s. The Roosevelt administration was continuing this, uh, this tax, the upper income groups. And when the war broke out, they raised taxes again substantially in 1942. And very, very importantly, they dropped the exempt income amounts uh, a great deal. Uh, got down to $624 for a single taxpayer. So your $625th dollar uh, was subject to the federal income tax. And this is, you know, middle class stuff. So the income tax became a middle class and upper income uh, tax. And you can see what happened to revenue here. Uh, revenue, federal income tax revenue in 1939 was $890 million, and by 1945 it was $17 billion. <clears throat> the military was permanently larger at the end of World War II because of the Cold War. And what I've got here is a diagram. Uh, this is government outlays uh, separately for, well, including transfer payments and then excluding from 1929 up to uh, 2009. And these are expressed as a percent of gross domestic product. <clears throat> and that's to adjust for inflation and, and the size of the economy. And you can see what happened during World War II, that the big bubble there, uh, nearly uh, approaching 50% of all outlay, uh, federal outlays were about half of GDP. And then after the war, what happened was the Proportion, it became, the government became permanently larger, but what has happened since then is the gap between the series including and excluding transfer payments has widened and continues to widen. So in other words, what has happened here is all this revenue came in, and it took Congress a while to figure it out, I suppose, but they sort of discovered the joys of transfer payments, of buying votes uh, by handing out the, you know, taxing Peter to pay Paul. And who's Peter? Peter's somebody with a job or a high income or, or both. And Paul is, <clears throat> for the most part, a Social Security recipient or Medicare or Medicaid recipient. And this process shows no signs of ending. Uh, so my argument here is that 
The large federal government is the unintended consequence of the federal income tax. Uh, we started taxing income to get, to get rich people and reduce the burden on the middle class. And what happened was it created this flood of tax revenue. And a flood of tax revenue has allowed the politicians to start buying votes with their transfer payments. And we have ended up with a permanently larger government running large budget deficits that I don't know anybody who thinks the federal budget deficit is going to disappear in the uh, near future. <clears throat> My second case study is cigarette taxes. Um, there's a long history of taxing tobacco. Uh, the federal government started doing it to help pay for the Civil War. Uh, the states started to get into the act in the 1920s. Uh, the, the point of the exercise uh, for states was simply to raise revenue. The, the health discussion didn't come until later. So in the 1920s, states started to impose cigarette taxes. The ball got rolling faster in the 1930s, so they needed revenue during the Great Depression. Continued during the 1940s. And in the 1960s, these rates, the original rates were just a few pennies per pack. Uh, the rates were substantially raised in the 1960s when the health benefits uh, began to get discussed. Third, you know, the famous Surgeon General's report that came out in the 1960s that correlated uh, tobacco consumption with health issues uh, was an impetus for states to start raising these taxes even more. The argument was we need to drive up the price of cigarettes to reduce smoking. There's a public health problem. All right. The, the, effect of the whole thing is to end up with some tax rates that are pretty divergent across state lines. Now, first off, you have the federal tax of $1.01 per pack. So it doesn't matter what state you buy them in, uh, you're going to pay the $1.01, unless you buy it on an Indian reservation or military base. <clears throat> uh, then you have the states um, pile on. And Virginia has the lowest tax rate in the country, 30 cents per pack. The highest tax rates you can find are in New York City and Chicago. The state of New York has a $4.35 per, uh, per pack tax. The city, New York City, adds an additional $1.50. Takes you up to, what, $5.85. And then meanwhile, Chicago, uh, they have a, the Illinois state, Cook County tax, city of Chicago tax, takes it up to $6.16 per pack. OK, well, you don't have to be a genius to figure out what's going to happen next. <clears throat> a semi-truck trailer holds 48000 cartons of cigarettes. There's 10 packs in a cart. So that means there are 480,000 packs of cigarettes on a semi-truck trailer. If you do a simple calculation, you take, uh, I, I did the extremes here but to make my point, but uh, it, you know, there's a lot of examples you can use. Chicago's $6.16 uh, per pack minus North Carolina's 30 cents per pack is $5.86 per pack. So if you bought a bunch of truckload of cigarettes in North Carolina, now doing that would be a little, uh, uh, you'd need a, a cooperative wholesaler, but they exist. Um, and oh, by the way, North Carolina does not require a cigarette stamp on the bottom of the pack. And then you could transport your cigarettes up to Chicago, put some phony stamps on the bottom of them, and sell them for the amount more that turns out to the difference between the North Carolina um, well, the Chicago price and North Carolina uh, price just in the taxes is $2,812,800 per truckload. So you can see what's going on here. There's an enormous amount of smuggling taking place. Um, there's all kinds of different um, ways that people are trying to avoid these taxes. Smuggling is a big one. Uh, the organized, um, organized crime has largely controlled this. 
And, and what they do is they load up trucks in low-tax uh, low states and move them on to high-tax states. Uh, there are scams that you can do to avoid taxes. Uh, there's no taxes if you export them. So you could set up a phony company, say, in uh, Canada, export the taxes to Canada, uh, excuse me, the cigarettes to Canada, no, no American taxes apply, then re-import them. Illegally, but you, you could do that. Um, Cross-border shopping, uh, it's well known, for example, people drive from Philadelphia over to Delaware to buy cigarettes, or where I live in Cincinnati, they drive across the river to Kentucky to buy cigarettes. Uh, people to go down to Mexico to buy cigarettes. Um, military bases, uh, people who have, um, can buy at the military base, load up on cigarettes and then uh, sell them to their friends. The Indian reservations are a huge source of um, uh, this process. The Indians, since they're technically separate nations, can import the cigarettes tax-free and then um, sell them uh, to people to go out and then move them off the reservation. And this is a particular problem in New York State with their very high taxes. It is estimated, and the more I've uh, been looking at this, I kind of think this estimate might be low, uh, probably about 20% of all the cigarettes purchased in the United States have been purchased in a way to somehow avoid the taxes. Either they crossed the border to buy them uh, or they bought them from a smuggler. They may not know they have, but they have. It's a, it's a huge issue out there. <clears throat> There's an enormous amount of this going on. Every, most Americans, I think if you walked up to an American on the street and said, Do, are you aware that cigarettes are being transported from low-tax low states to high-tax states, they would say yes. I think what they don't know is the magnitude of it. Uh, who are these terrorists? Uh, well, as I said, organized crime has... Um, got this one pretty well locked up in a lot of areas. In fact, uh, according to Patrick Fleenor, uh, the original cigarette smugglers were the same ones who were smuggling alcohol. When prohibition was dropped, uh, the organized crime syndicates didn't have the alcohol to do anymore, so hey, here's the next best thing, let's start smuggling cigarettes. And they have um, found many terrorist organizations uh, smuggling cigarettes. Not the least of which, for example, is you remember the first attempt on the World Trade Center uh, where they parked the truck in the, uh, underneath it and, attempt, and blew up the truck trying to bring the tower down, uh, they found um, phony cigarette stamps in their apartment. Uh, the IRA has been doing this. Uh, the uh, Saddam Hussein gang, and uh, it's an international problem. It's going on all over. It's a big problem in the United States. So the unintended consequence then of the cigarette taxes is the smuggling. A lot of crime going on with the cigarettes. The minimum wage... Uh, the minimum wage laws, the first ones, they were passed them at state level. Massachusetts did it first in 1912. And the point of the exercise, the goal of the minimum wage law uh, was they were very upfront about it. Uh, what they were trying to do is two things. One was uh, get what today we call a living wage. Uh, they thought a, a worker ought to be able to earn an income that would support the worker and um, the family. All right, so make, them, make worker, low-income workers better off. But the other thing they were trying to do, and they were very honest about this, was chase women and children out of the labor force, price them out. If we, raise the, if we impose a wage floor uh, that is relatively high, then the firm's, maybe the wage rate will be higher than the firm is willing to pay a woman or a child. So what they might do is get rid of the women and children from the labor force and instead hire adult men. <clears throat> that was the original logic. And this is why the original minimum wage laws in states only applied to women and children. 
The federal government got into the act during the um, Great Depression. You can imagine the Great Depression was a great stimulus to the minimum wage movement uh, because of all the unemployment and all the poverty. Uh, so they, people would buy into the um, argument about raising uh, low-income families' win incomes. Uh, so we put the first minimum wage in the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, but you all remember that that was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court a few years later. So they resurrected the minimum wage law in the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. That's, um, whenever they change the minimum wage, it's always an amendment to the Fair Labor Standards Act. The original minimum wages were pretty low. Were the original one was 25 cents an hour. And the other, um, thank you, the other point is that the minimum wage was so low that it didn't really matter. It was, uh, it was not binding in many places. And in areas where it was binding, they weren't enforcing it. The enforcement was very lax. Well, everything changed in 19, and I should add, uh, labor markets conditions were pretty strong during World War II and then Korea. Well, the, the big event that changed everything occurred in 1956. They raised the minimum wage from 75 cents to a dollar an hour. And very importantly, they began to enforce it. <clears throat> this is why most economists think that this is a key year. Uh, this is a diagram of the unemployment rate for white male 16-year-olds minus the unemployment rate for 45 to 54-year-olds. So in other words, a teenager has a higher unemployment rate than an adult. So you would expect this number to be positive, to be greater than zero. And you can see that back in the late 40s and early 50s, it bounced around in, say, the 8 to 10% range. And then suddenly, it starts going up substantially beginning in the mid-1950s. Most economists think the minimum wage hike of 1956 did that. Here's the same diagram, only this is for black 16-year-olds minus the unemployment rate for black men 45 to 54. Same pattern. And by the way, you'll see the same thing in white and black women. I've plotted those series out, too. They look very similar. Uh, big increases in the mid-1950s. Here's the unemployment rate for black 16-year-olds minus the unemployment rate for white 16-year-olds. And you can see that back before the minimum wage hike in the mid-1950s, the unemployment rates were essentially the same. A 16-year-old 16 16 blacks had the same unemployment rate as 16-year-old whites. In fact, some years they had a lower unemployment rate. But you can see what's happened starting in the mid-1950s. This unemployment rate started to go up, this gap started to go up substantially. Now, you might claim, well, it's racial discrimination. Well, wait a minute. Then why weren't they more discriminatory in the late 1940s? It doesn't make sense. Minimum wage, there are other reasons for this, but a minimum wage clearly played a role. So the unintended consequence of the minimum wage, then, is, well, what you do is you disemploy teenagers. Uh, teenagers lose their job. Teenagers lose the opportunity to have that first job, to learn how to uh, hold a job, get skills and experience, thank you, and um, uh, move on forward in the world. And it promotes racial discrimination. Alcohol prohibition. Uh, long story about how we, get, we got there. Let me just say it was started in the early 1800s because Americans were incredibly heavy drinkers. Um, we were drinking probably at least three times more uh, than we were, they do today. They do, uh, you know, the, not, per American, 15 and older, they were consuming an average of seven gallons of pure alcohol per year. And since the men were doing the drinking, that means it was more like about 14 per uh, male. So they were really heavy drinkers. And that's where the uh, movement for prohibition came from. 
If, and it's a long story, I'll spare us. Uh, we finally got there January 17, 1920, went into effect. So what was the goal? Reduce alcohol consumption. We do that, we'll get less crime, we'll get better economic conditions, and we'll get fewer broken homes. Those are just a few of them, what the proponents predicted. Uh, there were others, neither of the big ones. And there were some people who actually claimed that we'd probably be alcohol-free within about two generations. <clears throat> Here, what did, alcohol, did prohibition reduce alcohol consumption? Uh, a lot in the near term, but not, not that much in the longer run. Uh, this is a, a diagram, an estimate of pure alcohol consumption by Americans uh, from 1900 to 1929. You can see in 1900, we're consuming about 1.4 gallons of pure alcohol per person, per adult. Again, that was seven in the early 1800s, not 1.4, but seven. Um, then you can see what happened. We started restricting the production for World War I. Prohibition went into effect. The uh, man who put the series together did not offer an observation for 1920. And then what happened was alcohol consumption rebounded. Various measures of alcohol consumption tell us that alcohol consumption dropped quite a bit, rebounded, and ended up being about 30% lower than it had been before prohibition. So prohibition dropped alcohol consumption by roughly 30%. <clears throat> What were the unintended consequences? The big one was a lot of people died drinking poison booze. Uh, tens of thousands, we don't know how many, but numbers into the tens of thousands. What was this poison booze? A lot of it was denatured alcohol just mixed into a bottle. I mean, denatured alcohol, uh, you can buy from a hardware store. It's, it's deliberately poisoned alcohol. It's been deliberately poisoned to avoid the federal alcohol tax. It's used for industrial purposes. And what these uh, unscrupulous characters would do is just take denatured alcohol, pour it into a bottle with some uh, flavoring and uh, coloring, and call it, you know, put a label on it saying it's fine Canadian whiskey, and then go sell it on a street corner to anybody who wanted to buy it, including children, by the way. <clears throat> so tens of thousands of people died of poison booze. The crime rate soared. Uh, the organized crime syndicates took over the business and started shooting each other over turf battles. We filled up the prisons. We had to build new federal prisons. Uh, plea bargains went up, um, all those sorts of things. Massive corruption by police departments, mayors, prosecutors, just one story after another about corrupt uh, public officials. Uh, whenever you pro prohibit something this way, you pre provide an incentive to make the product smaller, more potent. Uh, so in other words, easier to uh, hide a fifth of liquor than is a case of beer. So. What happened was people started drinking hard liquor instead of beer and wine. And we became a nation of hard liquor drinkers. Easier for kids to get it because, again, an unscrupulous bootlegger doesn't care who they care to sell it to. Just like a street drug dealer today doesn't care if they sold to a minor. <clears throat> uh, the women drank more. Became a kind of a trendy thing for women to break the law and drink. Um, so women became drinkers during Prohibition. And then we had the Prohibition state police, uh, police state, uh, you know, seizing uh, goods you know, thank you, and uh, all in an effort to um, enforce the law. As I was reading through this, it just reminded me of the war on drugs. I mean, it's just a, the war on drugs is just a redo of prohibition. Um, the war on drugs has brought us all of these same things. Um, and I'll just kind of, I, I, I didn't, I don't harp away on that in the book. I'm just, I wanted the readers to read this chapter on prohibition and say, boy, that reminds me of the war on drugs. And if we legalized drugs, what would happen? We would have more drug cons uh, consumption. Yeah, prohibition proved that. It dropped by about 
well, if we legalized drugs, we would consume more drugs, but they would be, uh, it would be done so in a manner that would um, benefit us in other ways. Uh, criminal justice costs, uh, less poison drugs out there, and uh, a whole lot less crime. So anyway, that's my, um, my spiel. My conclusion is, um, be careful what you wish for. Uh, you pass some of these bad economic policies, um, and the unintended consequences can be severe. And we've now got Dodd-Frank and Obamacare to provide us all new topics or new books. <laughs> there will be books on the unintended consequences of Obamacare and Dodd-Frank. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Uh, our first commentator will be Patrick A. McLaughlin, who is a senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His research focuses on regulations and the regulatory process, with additional interest in environmental economics, international trade, industrial organization, and transportation economics. Prior to joining Mercatus, Dr. McLaughlin served as a senior economist at the Federal Railroad Administration in the United States Department of Transportation. Uh, Dr. McLaughlin has published in the fields of law and economics, public choice, environmental economics, and international trade. He holds a PhD in economics from Clemson University. Thank you. My first comment should be, it's an enjoyable book. It's indeed short and accessible, and I would advise anyone it doesn't take very long to read through it and it's something that uh, hopefully can inform uh, all of us about some of the unintended consequences that for the most part economists have studied and written about for decades but it needs to be more widely accessible the uh, I'll start with the very title of the book aftermath I thought it was very appropriate because when I looked up the definition of aftermath I saw that it's the consequences or after effects of a significant unpleasant event and, uh, and that really characterizes uh, one of the great services of the book. Um, Dr. Hall has done something that economists often have trouble doing, which is take something that's complex and nuanced and turn it into a story that it consists of events that people can process and remember. And so I think this book is best thought of as a uh, economist version of a bunch of events that lead to aftermath, but it's not just the aftermath of the policy choices. It's not just the unintended consequences and that follow the events. It's also the events that lead up to those. So he's got events on both sides of policy choices that are, that are very interesting and informative. Speaking of events, this is a picture of Ray Rice. And Ray Rice's recent events does a good, uh, gives a good analogy for aftermath. Uh, Ray Rice, as you probably know, was a professional football player. Now he's unemployed. And he was uh, filmed uh, beating his wife in a casino in New Jersey. And after these uh, events came to light, the NFL, the governing organization for professional football, uh, suspended him initially for only a short period of time. I believe it was two games. Later on, once the film came out and got into public hands, the NFL had to backtrack and make some other decisions. The aftermath of the decisions that the NFL made have yet to be seen, but what we have seen is the only in the face of some very specific and harsh evidence of someone being harmed did the NFL have to change their policies. 
So this book gives us some other examples of people being harmed by policies. The first is income tax, and a, uh, a large portion of the book dwells on the history of income tax, which I found really informative. Um, the events surrounding the creation of it and, and surrounding the uh, subsequent ramping up of tax rates, the spreading of the tax base, although eventually rates were brought down for the top groups, uh, were, well, it's a story of events again. And so let me give you one example, as already mentioned, uh, World War I. World War I was the first opportunity uh, at which politicians acted to take the initial income tax, which was targeting the super wealthy and to spread the base. And so this is the Lusitania. It's a very concrete, memorable event that we, you probably all read about in your history books. And it's that sort, of, that sort of thing that galvanizes politicians to move forward and take the next step to have a policy that spread wider, affects more people, then in turn has more consequences, unintended or otherwise. And uh, so this, the story of all these um, events leading up to the tax code being what it is today uh, got me to get online and download some data. This is data showing the total number of federal employees over time from 1939 onward. It's similar to one of the graphs that he just showed you in the sense that this shows you the effects of war and how that makes government growth occur. And also this part of the book does remind me quite a bit of the classic Crisis in Leviathan by Robert Higgs, and which is to say when you see these surges, these, these massive growths in the number of employees in the federal government, a lot of that's military growth for sure. We have World War II, that first big surge, and then you have Korea for the second surge, and you have Vietnam for that third surge there. You don't see a commensurate ratcheting down afterwards. You see that the, the government size stays large even after war is over. Similarly, you see that the effects of government choices made during those war times, such as changing tax codes, last afterwards too. And so another thing that Dr. Hull talks about in the book, which I found very intriguing, is during times of um, economic downturns, maybe they coincide with wars or maybe not, you of course will see revenue from income taxes go down, just like we saw uh, most recently in the, in the Great Recession. And so this graph shows you government receipts from all sources. The bulk of this is of course income taxes now, and the gray areas are recessions. And so you see these downturns at these recessions in government receipts, but then you see something that Dr. Hall points out, after it's over, these great growths in government receipts. And part of that is because, of course, the economy is going again, they're collecting more money from people working. Part of it's also because during these downturns, oftentimes you'll see politicians tinkering with what's collected, the taxes that are collected. And so you'll have uh, politicians maybe raising tax rates, a lot of this is documented, and then afterward when suddenly the economy is going again, they have this, I wouldn't call it a windfall, but a sudden surge in maybe unanticipated receipts. And then the unanticipated consequence of that, the unintended consequence of that is, well, if a politician has an extra dollar, he's going to spend that extra dollar. You have the growth then of these transfer policies, these transfer programs that Dr. Hall highlighted moment, a moment ago. And so this cycle of tying work, tying um, labor to taxes, to government receipts, uh, has led to the continual cycle of government and politicians having the opportunity to take that money, the windfalls after an economic downturn, 
and put that into the growth of uh, what we now call entitlement programs. What's going to happen in the long run? Well, we have yet to see, but it's not hard to, it's not hard to guess. Similar stories abound for cigarette taxes. I won't dwell on them much here, but uh, I think that the, the face of the victim, the, the, the ultimate sort of Ray Rice picture, if you will, is the story of terrorists. I think that that is the uh, most intriguing part of the unintended consequences portion about cigarette taxes. Yes, there is uh, smuggling for consumption purposes across borders. There is uh, Native American Indian reservations that engage in, in tax-free sales of cigarettes. And to some degree, that's maybe just a valuable service and arbitrage that economists often value. Uh, but then there, when it comes to criminal organizations and particularly terrorist groups, that's a different story. And that story, I think, is particularly intriguing in the book and uh, tying some sort of specific harm, sort of like the video of Ray Rice's wife being hit, to a policy. Similarly, with minimum wage, this is also a story that's well known amongst economists. When you increase minimum wage, you have some losers, of course. And those losers tend to be teenage minority groups. Unfortunately, that group doesn't seem to have a very powerful voice in politics. And so you see them continually harmed by this policy. But then I thought the most interesting portion of the book, to me at least, was the, the, the prohibition section. And so um, there's a very uh, well-documented and detailed history of alcohol in America, as Dr. Hall mentioned. And I learned a lot in that section alone. And uh, I would highly recommend reading all of that. But what it does is it characterizes the story before and after the choice to engage in prohibition. So the story leading up to it is important. And it's a bunch of events. And then the story afterwards and how we got there is also important. And you, if you go back and look for some of the people that drove this story that way, there were people like the Women's uh, Christian Temperance Union, I believe this was. And... Uh, Similar, similar cultural pushes to try to make a, America an alcohol-free society. And those are the sorts of stories that Dr. All has in here, and it gives it a more, gives the whole book a, a, a human element. It's not just a book about economics. It's a book about people. And that, that's wonderful. Um, the Ray Rice moment, though, and this, I think, is uh, one of the lessons I took away from the book. The Ray Rice moment, the moment at which everyone saw People are being harmed by this policy, and it, it was shown across the world as if it was on YouTube, was when you had people dying, people being poisoned by alcohol being sold that was intended for industrial uses and was deliberately poisoned. And you had, uh, he gives the example of a city, Wichita, Kansas, uh, the population of which was pretty small, but ended up with 500 permanently crippled people from nerve damage, uh, crippled males, I believe. Uh, called, uh, they had Jake Foot or Jake Leg Syndrome. And so basically a bad batch of alcohol got sold in Wichita, which contained some uh, Jamaican ginger extract, uh, which is actually some chemical which causes nerve damage. And this was drank wide, widely enough in that town to have a large portion of that town become permanently crippled. And so there is your Ray Rice moment. There is the time that you can say, there is a group of people that were concretely and and obviously harmed by this policy. And these are our fathers, these are our brothers, these are our cousins. It's that sort of, that sort of human face on a bad policy that leads to, I think, 
change. And so this, this is not coincidence that this is the only policy that we've actually seen go away. So some bigger questions then I have, does foresight, does knowing that there are going to be some consequences to a policy lead to avoidance of that policy? And I would argue that this largely is not the case. Uh, I think there are a lot of policies that, are, that were previously implemented, some of them discussed in the book, some of them uh, coming up now, that it's well known there will be unintended, or actually I guess you might say intended consequences, negative consequences to the policies, but nonetheless, the political calculus is such that politicians are willing to harm some groups with those policies in order to help other groups with those policies. Uh, the example given in the book, and we'll be writing about this for decades, I'm sure, is Dodd-Frank uh, and, and Obamacare. But here is a, a picture of Dodd-Frank, the regulations coming out of it. This is uh, from a database that I've created. It's available online at regdata.org. This database measures how much regulation comes out of specific federal agencies. And we have two lines here. The top line is the total word count coming out of agencies that were affected by Dodd-Frank. So the Dodd-Frank Act instru instructs a bunch of federal agencies to make regulations that are supposed to protect us from financial harm and other, other things. Um, CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, is one of the agencies targeted. The Securities Exchange Commission is another one that's targeted. This graph shows you all of the agencies that were targeted by the Dodd-Frank Act and how their word counts changed over time. The bottom line is the restriction count from these agencies. Restrictions are words like shall or must or may not. They're specific legal, binding legal, legal obligations that you have to follow or you'll be in violation of the law. You can see they move together for the most part, but you can also see after that black line, when Dodd-Frank was, was passed and signed into law, that there's a subsequent surge, about a, a almost 20% growth in the word count and the restriction count from these, these agencies. And that's only from 2011 to 2012 that that surge occurs. We're not nearly done taking the law and turning it into regulation. There's going to be at least another 20% surge after this. And we go back and measure this again. You'll see that the agencies that were previously regulating uh, the finance world have now doubled or maybe even more in size when you measure word counts or restriction counts as a result of Dodd-Frank. What will be the unintended consequences with that much text, with this many words and shalls, there's no way of possibly predicting them all, but there certainly will be many. And then the other question that I have is whether hindsight leads to change. And I think that this was the greatest contribution of the book. I, this is, the biggest takeaway is the only way that hindsight leads to change is if there's a Ray Rice moment. If there is a face, if there's a person who is concretely harmed, and everyone knows about it. In that case, you can have enough ammunition to go back and get politicians to change things. If it's just statistics, and I'm a data guy, I'm a statistics guy, it doesn't necessarily work. But when you put a face to the harm, then you can see that hindsight can sometimes lead to change. So in closing, I, uh, I recommend the book again, and I think that the finest attribute of the book is the storytelling component it's, it's a rare economist that can turn economics into stories, into events that have a human face, and uh, I, I commend it to you all. Thank you. Thanks very much. Our 
second commentator today will be my colleague, Jason Kaczynski, who is editor of Cato Unbound and a research fellow here at Cato. His ongoing interests include censorship, church-state issues, and civil rights in the context of libertarian political theory. He was an assistant editor of the Encyclopedia of Libertarianism, which I highly recommend to you and actually can be bought, uh, substantial reference work can be bought for a very good price uh, on your online bookstore or wherever you should choose to seek it out. It's a very nice piece of work. Uh, prior to working at Cato, the Cato Institute, uh, Jason served as a production manager at the Congressional Research Service. He earned a PhD in history from the Johns Hopkins University in 2005, where his work was offered both a Fulbright Fellowship and a Chateaubriand Prize. Uh, Jason is now at work on a book-length manuscript on the state. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about one of the least pleasant jobs that I have to do here at Cato. Uh, that is that the Cato Institute, from time to time, gets unsolicited manuscripts. And I have to review them, and I have to write all the rejection letters. Uh, some of them are trying to persuade the reader of things that the Cato Institute doesn't really stand for. And that's, you know, it's easy to, to, to just say, well, this, this is not really what we believe. Uh, some of them, I mean, I've gotten cookbooks and yoga manuals and uh, you know, scientific you know, treatises that we just, we just can't do. Um, some of them are maybe just, you know, the writing isn't quite where we want it, but it's otherwise okay. Uh, a few of them are trying to convince us that space aliens did 9-11. Uh, and, and then, you know, there are occasionally standouts. There are occasionally things that come to us without us having asked for them that are well-written, they are well-researched, they are well-organized, they have a message that is important to hear, they have a message that the Cato Institute can stand behind, and I'm, I'm pleased to say that, uh, that Professor Hall's book was uh, one of those very rare standouts. Uh, I, was, I was one of the first people at Cato to read the manuscript and saw it through the publication process, and I'd like to say a little bit about uh, what I think the, the book's good qualities are and, uh, and why I believed in it through the, the very long process of turning it from a manuscript into a, a printed book. <clears throat> I'm going to do this by way of a quote from one of my favorite philosophers, who is David Hume, a great uh, classical liberal philosopher of the Scottish Enlightenment tradition. In his essay of civil liberty, David Hume wrote as follows. I am apt to entertain a suspicion that the world is still too young to fix many general truths in politics which will remain true to the latest posterity. We have not as yet had experience of 3,000 years, so that not only is the art of reasoning still imperfect in this science, as in all others, but we even want sufficient materials on which we can reason. Now, this is a statement of extraordinary intellectual humility, I would say. To say that we have 3,000 years of experience with government and we still don't have enough data to really be able to draw general principles and we don't quite know where to begin even in how to analyze all this data, 
That is something that very few philosophers in Hume's time or in any other have been willing to say. Much more frequently, much, much more frequently, we get great, great confidence in the power of government to organize society. When political philosophers go to write about how society should be ordered, they are much more often uh, willing to legislate down to the very last detail. In, in this respect, uh, Plato is a much better representative of the entire tradition of political philosophy in the West than David Hume, and that's very unfortunate. Uh, one thing I would ask, though, is uh, have we made much progress since David Hume's time? You know, quite a bit of time has, in fact, elapsed since, since Hume wrote. Uh, we're more than uh, 200 years after his death. Uh, have, we, have we learned a few things along the way? And I would say that the answer is a very, very cautious yes. Uh, we know a lot more specifically about economics than anyone in Hume's time. We know things like uh, the marginal analysis of action in the market, that change happens on the margin rather than, uh, rather than in response to people's intentions or their feelings. Uh, we know that, uh, well, we've gathered a lot more data about, about how people live and about uh, what they will do in various situations. The, the word modern, we live in the modern age, the word modern comes from a root word that means to measure. And we modern people do lots and lots and lots of measuring. Uh, I don't have any graphs, but uh, uh, the book is full of graphs and uh, Patrick McLaughlin's pr pr uh, presentation was full of graphs. And uh, this is a thing that modern people do. We, you know, we make charts and graphs to see how, how various policies are working out. It's starting to look like we might be learning a little bit, not, not, not enough to plan things in, in fine details down to, you know, down to the last little bit. We're learning a little bit about what works and what doesn't. And what does seem to work, in fact, especially in a context where knowledge is limited, is uh, allowing people to make their own decisions and having a very modest and very restrained form of government. Now, um, when, when politicians act and when they, when they uh, propose policies such as a cigarette tax or as the prohibition of alcohol, very frequently, I would, I would say, those policies are undertaken not with reference to the actual outcomes, because in some cases those outcomes are unknown, uh, but they're undertaken with reference to intention. We intend to create a society where people will not suffer the ill effects of alcohol abuse. We intend to create a society where people will not suffer the ill effects of tobacco use. We intend to create a society, in the case of the minimum wage, where no one is poor. Uh, these are great intentions, right? I mean, these are wonderful intentions. How can you oppose them? And uh, the problems come in, of course, with the execution of the policies uh, and the unseen consequences that uh, Professor Hall does so much to explain in his book. It is not clear to me, though, that we will ever have the amount of knowledge that is needed to plan society comprehensively. I don't think that's possible. I think we could, we could dial up the amount of knowledge that we have indefinitely, and I think we would still face problems. Because a great deal of the knowledge that would be needed, I would suggest, a great deal of the knowledge that would be needed to plan society comprehensively 
is actually locked away within each person's brain and may not even be accessible to them themselves. So for example, consider what you are likely to want to wear five years from now. Uh, you'll probably want to wear clothes, that's a given. Uh, we can take that more or less for granted, but what will they look like? Uh, even the fashion designers in Paris and New York and Milan don't necessarily know what clothing is going to look like that far out. Uh, we don't really know uh, what styles of houses or cars or, or uh, wearable computers uh, we're going to want to have, but we will know them when we see them. We will know them when we see them. And that is a knowledge that in some sense is locked away within each of our minds, uh, but that we don't have ready access to. So the pursuit of better and better techniques of government remains limited. And big data might be useful in some ways in governing, but it's not going to be useful as a tool for comprehensive planning. So many things are simply inaccessible because they are, they are things that we will know when we see them. They are things that we will know because of a maybe tacit knowledge that we've always had locked away within us uh, that comes forward when, for example, we suddenly discover that there's a product we can't do without. And, oh, gosh, where did I put my, ah, oh, I have this. You know? and, and, and who would have thought that this would have been so ubiquitous and so necessary to all of us? And yet, and yet uh, it has. We knew it when we saw it. Uh, so, so the search for better and better data and better and better uh, sciences of government is, is still going to face limits. And there's another limit, which I'd, I'd like to talk about for just a little bit. And that, that limitation is uh, sometimes it's more than lack of knowledge in another way. Sometimes it is simply that politicians face different incentives from the rest of us. Politicians don't have to accept the costs of their own actions. Politicians get benefits from their actions that the voters and the people affected by the policies don't get. For example, if you vote for a higher minimum wage, that looks really, really good to most people. That looks like you care about poor people. And maybe you actually do care about poor people and you want to show it. And that's now, that, insofar as it goes, is okay, I guess. The question then becomes, does it really help? Uh, does it actually help the people that it is intended to help? The politician doesn't actually have to care about that. The politician cares about how they look. The politician cares about the incentives they face at the ballot box. The politician may even go as far as to know that economists like Professor Hall constitute a minority of the population. And uh, people who are skeptical of a minimum wage hike are uh, fewer in number than people who view it as a good idea. The people who are affected by the policy, uh, particularly if they're teenagers, they can't even vote. The people who are affected by the policy, who are perhaps older than teenagers, may not realize that the reason they can't get a job is because of the minimum wage. They may blame other factors. In fact, they're likely to blame other factors if they don't have an extensive background in economics. If they have an extensive background in economics, they're unlikely to be unemployed. So, 
So politicians face very different incentives. Politicians don't want to be seen as uh, indifferent to the poor. They don't want to be seen as not caring, which is what they might look like if they vote against a minimum wage increase. Those are their incentives, and their incentives are very different from what's good or bad for society. So I would suggest that while it is great to have a book of really accessible stories of unintended consequences and how policies work out badly, I would suggest that this isn't necessarily going to change our political process all by itself. Uh, it's a criticism I actually got of the book frequently when I uh, was pushing it through the publication process. And I, and I had to say, well, you know, it is important to tell these stories. It is still important to tell these stories because I, I remain at least a little bit an optimist that maybe if stories like this are told widely enough that the electorate will respond to them and will perhaps elect politicians who care about consequences and who judge their policies by consequences that are faced by the voters rather than by uh, what it makes them look like to people who don't really know about or don't really care about the consequences. So in that respect, I think the book does a very great service. I hope it works. Uh, I hope it succeeds. I am, I am a little bit, you know, a little bit of a pessimist. I'm cautioned by you know, the public choice school and, and the fact that politicians uh, don't face the same incentives uh, that uh, the rest of us do. But uh, I wish Professor Hall and everyone else who is in the same, uh, uh, who are toiling the same fields to have uh, a great success in their endeavors. Very good, Jason. I, I agree completely during the process. I also thought more than once you can't tell these uh, stories too often. Um, so now we'll go to the uh, question and answer part of our program. And that constitutes the following. Uh, please raise your hand and I'll call upon you. Uh, forgive my rudeness because I'll sort of point towards you and say the, this person on the row or something like that. We ask that uh, when you ask a question, first of all, your query be in the form of a question. Uh, you can direct it to any of the members, or typically uh, all members of the panel might respond, or you can uh, direct it to our author. We ask also that you identify yourself, and if you wish, uh, your affiliation for being here, although given our other positions in other parts of the world, anonymity is respected. Uh, at least as far as affiliations. So uh, please, uh, first people who would like to speak, the gentleman on the row here on the left, please also wait for the microphone, because uh, both for the internet uh, and for everyone to understand the question. Uh, my name is Haven Pell, and I am a blogger with a website called libertypell.com. My question is, what will be the unintended consequences of the vote in Scotland today? <laughs> well, anyone can take a shot at that. But Tom, I think, being the author, you've got the, the call. I have not been following it that closely. Um, I, my, I tend to think these things are always about money in the end. Um, so my, my understanding, I thought that the Scots were kind of getting the better end of the deal in terms of transfers uh, from the United Kingdom government. Um, so my, my guess is, based on, again, I'm very limited on this, uh, that it is not in the Scots' best interest 
to separate from the United Kingdom in an economic sense. Beyond that, I don't know much. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know much. I'm sorry. No other takers? All right. Uh, Mr. Ely, right here, the fourth uh, rollback. Uh, thank you. Bert Ely, um, banking consultant and adjunct scholar here at, uh, at Cato. Um, I have a question for Professor Hall that follows up on uh, a final comment that uh, uh, Mr. Kaczynski made. My apologies on the pronunciation of your last name. Um, with regard to the, uh, to the minimum wage, it comes down to a question of uh, even though we've had decades of debate over the minimum wage, uh, it still strikes me at the level of support. And I'm looking at some polling results I just got here on my uh, BlackBerry a few minutes ago, uh, showing that 70% of the people queried in a poll favored an increase in the minimum wage to uh, $10.10 from seven and a quarter hour, and only 28 opposed. That suggests to me that uh, despite decades of discussion and debate over the minimum wage, there hasn't been much progress made in terms of turning around people's attitudes uh, towards it. My question for you is, is this. Where have economists fallen short? What, what has been wrong, if you will, or insufficient in the arguments that have been made with regard to the uh, minimum wage, given the re high level of continuing support for a very substantial increase in minimum wage? That's a really good question, and it's one that I have pondered for um, many hours. I, I really wonder. Um, we hammer away on that in an economics class. If you, if a student takes principles of economics, the minimum wage is discussed. I'm convinced that a number of these students uh, are taught this and then promptly walk out of the classroom and favor minimum wage increases. Um, I think part of the problem is there's been an awful, the organized labor has a real strong interest in minimum wage. And so there's been an awful lot of money that's been funneled into the um, argument that uh, raising the minimum wage is a great idea. Um, I also have been very frustrated. I've been teaching university students for 35 years, and I am frustrated about uh, getting the message out there. Um, I, I really wonder how, how well we've done it. I don't know what the shortcoming is. Um, I'm confused by this, too. And I'm very discouraged by the fact that those polling numbers uh, just continue. And they're going to raise you the minimum wage again. Uh, I'm convinced it'll happen. States have passed their own constitutional amendments. Uh, I think there's 31 states now that have uh, state minimum wages above the federal one. Um, yeah, we've lost the battle. Um, now, whether we're going to continue to lose, I don't know. It's discouraging. My, my hunch on that is uh, similar to what I was saying. There's no discrete person to point, at, point to as the loser, the one who's harmed, or at least this doesn't make it into media. On the other hand, those who get the minimum wage hike, they're obviously going to go vote and they're going to cheer it. And I think it's just, it's a, it's a matter of not having a face for the harmed group and having a face for the group that benefits. And that's what politicians respond to. It is remarkable that uh, Mr. Ely mentions uh, there's a large data set that one of the lo longest run ones in political science called the American National Election Studies uh, polling goes back to the 1950s. It's a strong finding across that period that there is minimum wage uh, increases have strong support. There's other things that are not libertarian in, uh, in nature that also have strong support. But it does stand out. 
Perhaps one suggestion would be, however, the sort of logic and story behind the minimum wage, which uh, is pretty understandable when you understand that there's effects of cost of labor, um, is, has had some effects in the following sense. Given the strong polling and the public support for it, you would have expected many more, much more frequent raises and higher ones from uh, the political system. However, the, the sort of arguments that we've had about the actual effects have had uh, some effect in controlling that. That is to say, we've had less than you would expect because, in a sense, the politicians are saying to themselves, well, at some margin, a, a relatively small margin, you, uh, you, can take, you can roll the dice because there are economists that will tell you that. Um, uh, but if you, you're sure also at the problem is that you're at those increments, you're going to hit something, a point that has real uh, results. I mean, Europe found that out when it it, increasing the cost of labor. So in effect, we just, in a sense, don't observe the, the results we would, might like to see uh, don't exist because the public opinion is the way it is. We haven't convinced people on the uh, economic arguments. But the arguments have had some effect because you would expect something much worse than what we've got uh, without the arguments. Next, for, I, I sort of randomized by going to the right side. Or this is my, the best I can do. The gentleman here on the right in terms of being totally fair. Thank you. My name is Rolf Hoyer. I'm from the Swedish Agency of Growth Policy Analysis. I wanted to follow up on a little bit more general level on the previous question, and, and that is, if I could ask any of the speakers to talk a little bit about undetected consequences. Uh, unintended presumes that you don't in advance anticipate consequences, but it seems to me that there are many policies that are enacted and you get 20, 20 years of experience, bad experience. Nevertheless, they're not sort of weeded out. You don't learn from your mistakes. Is there an explanation for this? I, I'm not quite sure I understand yeah. what you mean by undetected consequences, but uh, one thing that occurred to me with uh, Professor Hall's graph of alcohol consumption is that I immediately doubted the 30% uh, decrease in the amount of alcohol consumed because it's uh, very, very easy to make your own beer and wine at home, for example, and uh, nobody ever needs to know about it, and uh, it probably just doesn't show up in the figures. Uh, there were very commonly uh, instances of uh, vineyards which formerly had manufactured their own wine instead selling people grape juice and saying, do not mix this with yeast and let it sit around because then it will turn into wine and that's illegal. Uh, so, uh, you know, of course, uh, people read between the lines and did what they you know, were inclined to do and, uh, and there was an underground wine industry all across the country as one of the unintended and I think sometimes undetected consequences of prohibition. Uh, the same is, of course, true uh, with marijuana today, where if you really want to, you can grow a very small amount of marijuana in your home, and chances are you're not going to be discovered. So how much, how much are people really smoking of marijuana? More than the official figures would, uh, would indicate. 
people lie on studies. Uh, there have been some very interesting, uh, interesting uh, papers published about uh, cocaine use uh, by studying the metabolites found in sewers. And it turns out people lie about their cocaine use too. And they, uh, you know, people in the the public uh, apparently. Uh, uses a lot more cocaine than uh, they're willing to fess up to on government studies. Surprise, surprise. Gentlemen, third, did you want to say anything? Well, one, one thing on the undetected consequences. Um, my, my field of expertise is mostly regulation. That's what I study. And federal regulation likely has a lot of undetected consequences because of its immensity. There's over 175,000 pages of federal regulation in the current edition. It would take you two years to read all that if you were able to read full-time eight hours a day. Um, there are some specific examples I can think of where it took decades to realize that there were some consequences to regulations that maybe had been going on for a long time but finally were detected. One example is the uh, regulation that requires that cars have high beams and low beams. If you drive in America, you have a switch on your car that can flip between high beams and low beams, and that regulation exists, presumably, because they were worried, DOT was worried, that people would drive around with high beams on and blind oncoming drivers. And that was fine for decades. But then it was invented in Europe and Japan. Uh, systems were invented that could have a hybrid system of high and low beams. So basically, you're driving along with this hybrid system. It could direct a low beam at an oncoming car while keeping high beams everywhere else. Hmm. Until that system was invented, we didn't know that we're actually we're, uh, inhibiting innovation, innovations like this that could save people's lives. Imagine there's a pedestrian on the side of the road. You switch off your high beams and you don't see him because there's an oncoming car. But this hybrid system could detect that pedestrian on the side of the road. So however many decades we didn't invent that because no one had the thought to invent a hybrid system because there was a regulation in place that said you can't do it. That's undetected, uh, undetected consequences and unintended for sure. But uh, actually, it's also notable that that still hasn't changed. We still can't have that system in America. I would only mention in, just in passing that there's also the element of uh, unexpected consequences from government policy itself within the government. That is, most of uh, Professor Hall's book is about interactions with the economy. Uh, I've studied the area of campaign finance uh, for a long time. And actually, the unexpectedness of policy emerging from the Supreme Court in campaign finance probably had uh, some effects of, of uh, they were expected to strike down McCain-Feingold. They didn't. That had an effect on the, it being passed. But the fact that... Uh, Citizens United was ultimately decided, was unexpected, and also probably should have the effect of making it less likely in the future that uh, there will be campaign, comprehensive campaign finance reform because, because Citizens United was uh, passed. It's very reasonable to think that the only effect of, of became fine gold was to do some harm to members of Congress and the parties they represent in Congress. So in a sense, that you, generally you want certainty in policy, but I think uncertainty about what parts of the government would do might have good effects at times. The gentleman third from the bottom now has been. Uh, I'm Owen Amber. I chair AIM's Strategy Markup Language Committee. StratML is an XML vocabulary and schema for strategic and performance plans and reports. 
part of the problem with understanding unintended consequences. We don't do a very good job of documenting our intended consequences, at least not in ways that can be effectively measured and reported to stakeholders. The question I have for the panel, though, is, is there anything that we can do to better understand unintended consequences than wait until bad things happen and tell compelling stories about them? You, I think you could, I, I think the media has come up short on this. I, um, I, I think about the Obamacare bill, many, many of the problems that have arisen with this Obamacare were predicted. Um, I, you know, the, the many economists, uh, people, non-economists were, were analyzing that law, and there have been very few surprises here. But the media dropped the ball in reporting a lot of this stuff, I thought. So I don't know how you fix that. From, from the regulatory world, um, government does engage at the federal level and a lot of state levels in trying to anticipate consequences of regulatory actions. They perform what's called regulatory impact analyses for the biggest of regulations, and these are supposed to anticipate costs. Now, they aren't always well executed. In fact, I think they're rarely well executed, but that, that is an effort and a specific recommendation that I think could make those better executed and then therefore have us anticipate unintended consequences better would be make those analyses judicially reviewable. Make it something that you could go and sue an agency for doing a really bad analysis hmm. over. Yeah, I'm on front here. Yes, my name is Per Korovsky, uh, Voice and Noise Foundation. I was a former executive director of the World Bank uh, 10 years ago, and there I screamed bloody murder because I saw in front of me bank regulations which allowed banks to have zero capital, zero equity when lending to sovereigns while required to have 8% in equity while lending to a normal citizen. And I said, this is going to make bank lending too much, banks lend too much to the sovereigns and too little to the citizens, just clear as that. I was ignored and then comes the things like Greece, excessive lending to sovereign, and then I start hearing unintended consequences. Should really not the level of proof of evidence be much higher before we accept something as unintended consequence? Because it's a really danger all around, everyone taking, shielding themselves behind those things of black swans and unintended consequences. For things they must have absolutely known, and if they did not knew it, they should not be there. And, and, and just a final comment before, before this answer is on the, on the minimum wage. When we fight minimum wage, there's no way we're going to uh, make an impact. We have to start talking about uh, maximum entry-level uh, barriers to entry-level to the market. You have to find words that really uh, show much more what, you, what you're after. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, more questions then. The gentleman on third from the bottom on the row. Thank you. My name is Michael Finger. I want to talk about and ask about possible unintended consequence of the book itself. Uh, uh, Mr. Hard Dr. Hall provided us with a noble intent behind each of the policy measures 
He's, he analyzed, uh, Mr. Kaczynski pointed out that uh, the rationale and the intent of these things may be quite different, and so the, uh, the intended consequences that motivate the votes may not be the noble things that are cited in the explanation for the thing. And so I ask uh, Dr. Hall if he's uh, thought about the possibility that uh, an unintended consequence of his book will reinforce the idea that the government always acts on noble intentions. Uh, second part is that this leaves us, if we're looking for something salubrious, we might rather look at the unintended consequences than the intended consequences. Uh, one, one example there is the uh, Typical Trade Agreements Act ended up with the Congress never writing a tariff directly, which resulted in a lot of reduction of the tariff. Had you told any member of Congress the result of the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act would have been that Congress would never again write the tariff directly, no one would have voted for it because it was then the major source of political patronage. Uh, in my experience dealing with international trade, I can I can probably find more positive unintended consequences than I could find positive intended consequences. And so I would ask Mr. Hall if he might worry a bit about his reinforcing the idea that the government always acts on the basis of noble intended consequences. <laughs> well, you're raising a very good point. Um, uh, I, I've I've always thought that the government usually has noble intentions, um, but I think not always. And I have gotten more cynical as I've gotten older, um, so I guess I'd leave it at that. But I think, yes, I, I'll leave it at that. There's also um, motivations for maintaining a policy, not just for creating a policy. And that's so even if you assume that minimum wage uh, policies were enacted with noble intention, does that mean that they were maintained with noble intention? And that's maybe another extension of, of, of your question. And I, I think that the reason policies are maintained may not be so uh, noble, even if the initial reason was. It's certainly true that all throughout history there have been unintended good consequences of government policies or or uh, times when maybe the government had every intention of doing something that they, uh, by our light, should not do uh, and somehow failed at it. So uh, the collapse of the censorship regime in uh, the English Civil War or uh, during the French Revolution or, or the uh, notoriously lax censorship in the Dutch Republic, uh, you know, simply because the government was not capable of, of carrying it out. Uh, these, are, these are examples of, of interesting, unintended, uh, in effect, policies. These were, not, these were not consciously directed policies. It was just that uh, you know, it happened that there was, there was this great outpouring of, of you know, now historically fascinating pamphlet literature during the English Civil War uh, because the government was paralyzed. Um, now I, I can't recommend that government paralysis is always going to be a good thing, but sometimes, you know, sometimes there's something to be said for it. Um, yeah, that's, that's certainly true. Perhaps one thing we could say here, I think there is lurking in behind everything that's been said, behind the book itself, perhaps, 
the notion that you, you would sort of expect if uh, when people do things that there would be uh, ends and means would be a rational relationship between the two and you take some men you have some ends noble or otherwise you want to achieve you pass policies trying to achieve them you would think that if there's substantial evidence over time that the means themselves have uncertain results and you can't make the connection between the means and the ends very well, that it might make you a lot less confident and a lot less active in the things you do, that it would draw you back in a way. But that just doesn't seem to work in the sense that, unless, of course, the other possibility is without all the unintended consequences that have been poor that we've noticed, there would have been much more on all those graphs that were shown earlier in the session would have been even more steeply upward in terms of government employment or in terms of proportion of GDP going to government without the unintended consequences. But it's hard to see that this nor normal relation, that the when the relationship between means and ends doesn't hold, you would expect David Hume to win out and there to be a, a great deal of skepticism about what you're doing. We seem to go through cycles of skepticism and then just charging ahead uh, into more unintended consequences. Uh, one last question. The gentleman's two in in the blue shirt. Getting. Uh, thank you. I'm Dave Rabinowitz. And uh, a few weeks ago, Governor Rick Perry spoke at the Heritage Foundation about illegal immigration. But right before his speech, there was a panel discussion there. And one of the panelists mentioned that the Reagan administration tightened up the Mexican border. And as a result, within a very short number of years, the number of illegal Mexican immigrants in the US more than quadrupled. Because previously, they'd come, work, go back, and then come again. And when it became more difficult to come again, they just didn't bother going back. I doubt that that was an intended consequence. <laughs> and I guess Yogi Berra said that prediction is hard, especially when you're trying to predict the future. <laughs> and I'm wondering, do you have any, have you learned anything from the studies about how you might be able to predict some of these uh, unforeseen consequences? I don't, you, you just kind of think them through, I think. Uh, I, I did, that's an immigration story. It's interesting. I didn't know that one. Uh, but if you just stop and think, um, thinking about these cigarette taxes, for example, and I, if you, you think about the differential to cigarette tax rates, it's obvious what's going to happen. And I, I was wondering, well, why don't they do something? Why don't they do something about it? And I talked to a few of these state uh, uh, people in charge of these cigarette taxes in states, and the attitude was... I talked to the one in Kentucky, for example. Well, we got a good thing going here. It's the gist of it. We don't want to rock the boat. Uh, so we don't want to cooperate with uh, the state of New York, for example, because we, we are selling more cigarettes than we otherwise would be. They're being shipped off to New York. So we're happy with the arrangement. New York would like to Kentucky to cooperate with them, but they're not going to do it. So, um, I, I, so I, I don't, it's not a very good answer to your question, I guess, but I think you just think it through. Easier said than done. I'd suggest two rules. Uh, first, don't assume that people will act in accordance with your intentions. Your intentions are not going to be the basis of their actions. That's, that's rule number one. Second, uh, rule number two would be assume that they will act based on the incentives that they face. 
So uh, Mexican immigrants, are they really going to act based on the intentions of the Reagan administration's uh, immigration policy? Of course not. They don't care about that. They care about their own lives and their own families. They care about their own jobs. They care about the well-being of their children or their wives or their, their husbands or whatever the case may be. They, they're not interested in, in public policy in Washington. They're going to go where they can make money because they are they're trying to make a living. So, uh, so ask what the incentives will be that they face rather than uh, what my good intentions are or whatever, you know, whatever case may be about, uh, about how I feel about the matter. Develop a more sophisticated theory of mind where you know, people with different minds have different motivations. Like I said, you can't say it too often. Uh, on that note, uh, I would like to thank our uh, author, Tom Hall, and our uh, two panelists, Jason and Patrick, uh, for a very nice uh, panel today. Uh, remember, the book is Aftermath, The Unintended Consequences of Public Policies. Professor Hall will be happy to sign it. If you purchased a copy, you can purchase a copy outside if you like at this point. Uh, otherwise, I'd like to invite you all to the second floor to our conference center where we will be having lunch as you're going up there toward the back of the Cato Institute, uh, along the yellow walls on your right, you'll see the restrooms. Thanks very much for coming.